these free divers and I have something in common. So you kind of find your your people, your tribe. So all of a sudden you get that sense of connection to other people, to the water. And they always, I, I read this later, they say like depression is in a way a lack of connection. You feel disconnected from everything and you feel lonely and you feel unworthy. And because all of a sudden I was developing these connections with people, with, this, with the ocean, with myself, with my passions, you, I slowly, like that was my lifeline out of, out of that dark hole. It's episode 32 of Dive in the Podcast with special guest Dan Verhoeven. Welcome to Dive in the Podcast, your favorite podcast about all types of diving, scuba tech, freediving, and more. We cover it all. Every week on Monday, we post new episodes filled with diving news, interesting dive topics, ocean advocacy, and much more. Hi, everybody. I'm Justin. I'm April. I'm Nick. I'm Umit. And we're the hosts of Dive in the Podcast. Tonight, we're speaking to Dan Verhoeven. Dan is a freediving underwater photographer and cameraman extraordinaire with the gift of gab. Dan's presence at some of the world's most elite freediving competitions means we get to witness the magic of this deep sport. He's also an accomplished filmmaker who regularly publishes epic YouTube videos, so make sure you check those out. So on last week's episode, we had Irene Marcoux. She was a blast and a pretty funny lady. She's got a serious passion for diving. Yeah, I got to say, like, I I was sad to miss that. I was actually listening to it today in the gym and kind of laughing along with her. And so, you know, of course, the I think the, the title there was the, the or the piece <laughs> that jumped out to me, the orgasms <laughs> of diving was pretty funny. So I thought that was something yeah. else. And yeah, her, her positive outlook and the fact that she's pushing some equity related issues in diving mm-hmm. as well, female ambassador. So yeah, it was kind of neat to jump out of the podcast for, uh, for the first time in a while and then come back in as a, as a listener. So yeah, great episode. Right. Yeah, it was super cool. And I think she's my new best friend, so no. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like she's gonna come <laughs> down here. April. We're tight now. <laughs> yeah, that's you guys right. are that's right. You guys got an Instagram DM chat going on at all times now or no? Pretty much. Like, <laughs> you know, basically instant best friends. Just BFFs. Right. B- yeah. Instant BFFs. Yeah. I definitely got that BFFs. feeling. I was like, you guys, you know what? She doesn't need any other friends. You you've got it all locked <laughs> down. You got it locked down. She's just gonna get a little April fix. And yep. uh, she's ditching Montreal to come here, right? Yeah. Wasn't yep. there some yep. chat about like what was this business anyways about a mitt pain for some kind of <laughs> like I, I don't know how I give. We're all going to Iceland. Yeah, and I'm involved in this bus. somehow. Like yeah. okay, no. yeah, <laughs> I don't know, we man. threw the the head cannon we used was that you were working overtime to pay for our Iceland trip. Yeah, that's why you weren't <laughs> there last week. You were yeah, you're busy gonna working a, OT. Could be a lot of overtime. Uh, you know, <laughs> last I heard, they suspended overtime based on COVID. But hey, what are they doing? So I was I was saying like we should we should get our sponsor to donate some of those corporate points to us, and we'll all go oh. amazing. What do you think of that idea? There you go. I like now that we're one. talking. Uh, now Free plane trips are always the best kind of trips. So definitely the best. Would we rather have a pension or a trip to Iceland? Whoa, whoa, mm. whoa! Don't mess with the pension. Easy now. <laughs> Easy. Long term, April. Long term. It's, it's a then and now kind of situation. <laughs> Look, uh, a lot of a lot of things in the world today, April, aren't black and white. This doesn't have to be either or. We can have <laughs> That's it all. That's true. We There's can have it all. There's a lot of gray. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, yeah. I, I'm still waiting for all of our other sponsors to jump in on there and be like, these guys, we're sending them around the world on a tour mm. to do the podcast from every live yes. location in the yep. world. In the 2020, <laughs> where everything is just Zoom meetings, we'll That's be right. traveling the world <laughs> via Zoom, <laughs> diving the podcast, zooming at you live. <laughs> but we're world. actually in Iceland. Our, okay, uh, our Zoom trip to Iceland. Iceland would be a nice, would be a nice uh, bit of I don't know icing on the cake after a tough year. It'd be cool. Maybe we should yeah. like chat with a dive shop there and see if they'll like host us, and we'll you know. Yeah, you know, one of, some tradesies. One of our old uh, staff members, uh, Rob Fairweather, worked yes. in Iceland for a while, so okay, we'll probably have an in. We'll have to we'll yeah. have to investigate that. This is a good idea. All right. Well, uh, speaking of investigations, you guys have definitely everybody's heard of military vets learning how to scuba dive for rehabilitation and and treatment of post traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There is a study that's in the process of being reviewed, so you, you don't have full access to the study quite yet, but there's a there's a bit of a uh, synopsis on it in an article that we'll have linked in the show notes there. Petra Walker, in conjunction with Hannah Campman of the Post-Traumatic Growth Research Unit at the University of East London, we're doing a study to actually measure in a quantitative way post-traumatic growth in para-athletes, so in specifically in scuba diving. And they did a bunch of work and there's, you know, information in the article, but basically the long story short is that diving uh, does amazing things for people. And there's a, there's a system or a company called Depth Therapy and they went with them and, and did some dives and, you know, some people got certified and stuff and it made a world of difference for these people. And that's, uh, it's good to see that that's proven because that kind of could reinforce it and, you know, probably free up funds and and uh, get people in the programs where they can you know learn to dive with with some disabilities yeah i think there's uh you know that that's been sort of a thing that's been going on now for a while and i know there are different different organizations around that are basically i won't say pushing but they've recognized mm-hmm. the need for that and from you know from my viewpoint i do look at the uh, the ptsd component i'm not sure like you know when i was uh, looking at that article how the mm-hmm. post-traumatic growth in para-athletes is measured. So uh, was, was that yeah. indicated at all throughout the... It didn't go too deep into that, but there's some sort of previously set up measurement system in place where they could measure that. And I'm sure that'll be explained in the actual paper when it's when it's fully published. But you know, yeah, for now, just, just proprietary, right? Yeah. Is that correct? I don't know so if it's think, proprietary, but I think just it's not published yet. You know, it really yeah. is like when you think about this, I, I mean... How many of us really like have said, I go diving just to disconnect. And I know when I first mm-hmm. started diving, I was, you know, like I was in a job that was pretty stressful. And that was one of the things I found, like it was just constantly phone ringing, people calling you even after work. And, you know, because of the type of work it was, you just couldn't not answer the phone. And so you never really had an opportunity to disconnect from the so-called right. pressures. And I think if you ask that uh, question of a lot of divers, you'd probably get the, you know, the sense that like, yeah, people do it as a means of relaxation. And so it would then make sense that if, you know, if you think about post-traumatic stress and you, and you think about how that works in terms of uh, triggers and, you know, sensory triggers, then mm-hmm. it makes sense that if you put yourself in an environment where, it's so foreign to anything that you would know that 
the likelihood of you experiencing a trigger like that are going to be, you know, significantly diminished. So I would wonder as well if, if that, those environmental factors play a piece in it. So anyhow, great story. I, I, I think would really love to be able to dig into that article a little bit more and kind of geek out over it, I guess, as mm-hmm. it were, but very promising to see. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the dive shop, we did a group of vets. We did that a few years ago and talked about doing more, but you know, they do a different kind of thing every year. So I'd like to bring that back and get them out there again. So that was a, that was a pretty awesome experience. Yeah, I think certainly from my standpoint, I'd have an interest in that. So should mm-hmm. it ever come up and you're looking for an instructor, <laughs> I could I, probably I see call. myself volunteering some time towards that effort. Amit, did you notice that in the picture of the, on the article that the divers were in side mount gear? You know, I got to tell you, it may or may not have been the absolutely first thing that I noticed. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was looking at it, if this puts it into perspective, the first time you sent uh, the article, I looked at it on my phone and I was just mm-hmm. like, whoa, whoa, I think those are bungees. <laughs> and so these guys are diving side mount. And so I had to go blow it up on the phone. And so, yeah, absolutely. And so I just, you know, it just goes to show that if you're going to do it, just do it right. And, you know, that maybe this is a contributing factor. I think I really want to read it just to find out if it's true or not. So I want to know from the researchers, did they account for the mm-hmm. fact that perhaps side mount was, was the real reason behind all this? <laughs> well, you know, it, it could make sense with, with physical disabilities and stuff that, uh, you know, having the side mount type set up probably be beneficial in, in a lot of aspects is, you know, moving gear around and placement and trim and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I think uh, you are correct. I was looking at it more from the, you know, the non-scientific meaningless, <laughs> meaningless, just plug for side mount. But right, yeah, right. when you, when you bring it to reality, I do agree with all those legitimate reasons for why you would, why you would implement side mount in a situation like this as well. So <laughs> not to detract from, you know, from the meaningless reasons that, that are completely biased on my part. Earlier this week, Nick got a chance to speak with Dan Verhoeven about freediving. I had the pleasure of chatting with Dan, who I would have hoped to see in November at the competition in Dominica, but, you know, it's COVID-19 and all. Mm-hmm. But it was great to catch up with him and chat freediving about his career and his photography and how freediving has uh, helped define who he is now. All right, well, let's take a listen. Let's dive in. Dan, thanks for joining us. For the scuba and tech divers that are listening to this podcast, who is Dan Verhoeven? Do I have to talk about myself in the third person? I hate that. I am a freediving cameraman. So that entails that I take pictures and shoot movies all unbreathled. And if we go back in time a bit, what was your first memory of the ocean? Oh, I remember being petrified. Yeah. Um, Not so much of the ocean because I grew up in the Netherlands. So water is always nearby. You know what I mean? But it's like we did grow up at the coast. It is because the Netherlands is so shallow and we flood so often. It is tradition that Dutch (laughs) children learn how to swim really early because it's kind of like a survival mechanism thing. (laughs) We need to know how to be able to (laughs) swim. But I remember, so I remember being in pools and being very afraid of water. And that didn't change until my stepfather took me on his back and I had those little rubber uh, inflatable things on and he just pushed off underwater right. and then whenever i felt like i needed to breathe i could just let go of his 
let go of his back and I'd float up to the top and breathe again. And that sensation of rushing water was so magnificent that it was so close to flying that like in that moment, my fear of water became a passion for water. So the first time I ever was in the ocean, I was I was loving it because it was so big and airy and light. It was must have been in France or something. But just looking underneath the water and it's like, like it, I instantly loved it. So it went from like this this fear to a passion. So pool is scary for you as a child, and then the ocean, which is much bigger, just becomes this this place of freedom. But yeah, because like by that time I already incorporated that fear into like the fear became part of the the pleasure in a way like it became part of the anticipation and of the of the whole experience like any large body of water has an inherent potential for well danger but also for a lot of fun and for sort of a, a there's a magic about it there's a there's a, a power to any large body of water so, and I think you, if you instinctively pick up on that and you can build it into your experience, like the fear becomes part of the exhilaration. That's interesting. I'm going to have to try that as a technique with my students. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no point in denying the fear. Like you should be afraid of the sea, right? Like it's, it's strong and it's, it's true. It, yeah. it could, it could eat you up. Like you're not even there. Like it doesn't care. It's enormous potential there also for like extremely scary things. So like, I think if you're not afraid of the ocean a little bit, then you probably don't really know the ocean. Or have something wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> yeah, I assume from that point on, then you discovered that and you went straight into freediving? In retrospect, yes. Like I spent most of my time when I was in the sea underwater, like snorkeling, seeing how deep you can get. But at that time, I was a kid and I didn't know anything. Like, I didn't know that that was a sport. I didn't know it was called freediving. By the time I was 18 or 19, I started doing scuba things. Like, uh, what's it called again? The Petty Level 1 or something? Or the Petty Open Water the Diver, open water I guess course. it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never got over that the idea that it's weird to be breathing underwater. I love the sensations of certain things, but <laughs> breathing on the water was just like every time, every dive I did, it's like, this is weird. There's bubbles coming out of me. Fishes are looking at me weird. Like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you know, it's it, it never felt natural to me. And then, you know, also like you, like I did an advanced uh, petty course. So you get to go to like 40. And then the way up is just taking forever. And you have to look at your watch and can I do another five meters and... So that wasn't really my my scene. So as soon as I kind of discovered that there was something called freediving where you didn't need to like, look at your watch every five meters to see if you could come <laughs> yeah. up or something, that that instantly clicked with me a lot more. Where did you do your first freediving course? Or did you do a freediving course? Because I know a lot of people haven't necessarily. Yeah, so I right after I did my advanced petty thing, uh, that was in Marsha Alam in, in Egypt, which very idyllic and beautiful. But right after that course, we were there for another week together with a friend. And we started doing this snorkeling thing and just seeing how deep we could take the analog depth gauge on the breath hold. And that was, <laughs> that was, that was so much more fun that we kind of went like, Oh, what's this? And then he discovered that there was a course in Holland run by a guy who could hold his breath for like an amazing five minutes. I'm like, no, surely not. We did an introduction with him, Bill Megans, and he taught taught us like the basics of like how to take a deep breath. 
I wouldn't call it a freediving course yet, but that's kind of how I started. So I hadn't learned any mm -hmm. of the fundamentals of like the safety or any of that, but I just kind of went all in after learning how to breathe. And then after about a year of training a lot and everything, I did my first actual course where they talk to you about buoyancy and talk to you about safety. That was the main thing, I think, and talk to you about those things. But by that time, I was already diving into well into the 30s. Or I, I did the stupid thing, like going in there without much education, but I guess with a lot of <laughs> a lot of passion. I think a lot of people did it, and it kind of like if you think back about like where freediving is now and how people were doing it even just 10, 15 years ago, it's 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 a scary era, right? That surprisingly more people didn't get hurt. Yeah, yeah, it was re remarkable, but I don't know. It's if I think about it now, if if I saw a beginner do what I did back then, I'd probably slap him. So it's kind of like also because <laughs> yeah. it's like it's just a stupid way to go. Like there's so many things you can learn on a good course. Like I'm still battling the bad habits that I developed the first year of freediving. You know, my equalization is still kind of I have no idea what I'm doing because I just do what I did in the beginning. So yeah, yeah, it's not not a clever way to go about it. So I know that freediving for you has been a personal journey, and I, I can relate to some of that, even if I'm maybe not ready to talk about it more publicly. But if I can ask you, how how has freediving helped you in your life? Ooh, in a way, you could say that freediving gave me a life. Like I think that sounds really melodramatic, but I think when I started freediving, I was still a smoker, but I was also like I smoked weed every night just to help me go to bed because I was having these really negative thoughts, really negative self-image, really, I think I was in a depression. It's fair to say I was in a depression. Like my father had died a couple of years previously and that kind of spiraled me into a really negative place for about four years where I was just at home, not going out, not seeing friends, not traveling. Just smoking, smoking weed a lot, just to like suppress whatever it was that I was feeling, which was really down. So when I discovered freediving, I kind of found something. I was looking for a way out of that depression, and I found like it gave me a lifeline. Like, okay, I can grab onto this. I found something I enjoyed that I could do on a daily basis, and that motivated me to stop smoking and to stop smoking weed, which really helped with my physical health. And then. Because freediving is such a demanding sport, it also made me, like, it makes you, if you train hard, you have to eat better. Because otherwise, you just, like, if you eat shit, you feel like shit. So I started eating healthily, like, eating healthy, lots of exercise. Like, that's good for your mind, isn't it? And doing something you really enjoy, that's really mm. good for your mind. So I started coming out of this depression. And then because freediving events are all over the world, I started traveling more, meeting like-minded people that I could relate to because all of a sudden, like these, these free divers and I have something in common. So you kind of find your, your people, your tribe. So all of a sudden you get that sense of connection to other people, to the water. And they always, I, I read this later. They say like depression is in a way, a lack of connection. You feel disconnected from everything and you feel lonely and you feel unworthy. And because all of a sudden, I was developing these connections with people, with, this, with the ocean, with myself, with my passions. You, I slowly, like that was my lifeline out of, out of that dark hole. Because I discovered freediving, then I discovered, in a way, that led to my other passion. Because 
I started traveling, so I had to tell my mom that I was safe, so I had to get a phone. And on the phone, there was a little camera, and that camera rekindled my love for photography because mm. I, I grew up with a, a camera, and I kind of like let that aspect of my life go to, to the side. But that little camera rekindled my love for photography, so I started taking more pictures and working with pictures, and it just kept rolling and rolling. And then once I had that going, like that became my job because I, I met all these freedivers. I met my girlfriend there and that became like the third pillar. So you have freediving, you have photography, you have a good relationship. And all of a sudden, like within a couple of years of starting to freedive, I had this solid foundation on which to build all of a sudden. So I went from like a dark hole to a much more airy and light place where like, I still am genetically prone to being somber and melancholy. But now I know how to deal with it. And my situation is so completely different that um, it's easier to put in the effort to stay mentally healthy. You know, it, it's become a habit. Whereas before I was just kind of letting the, the melancholy and letting the somberness and letting the darkness take over. And that started with freediving. Like freediving in and of itself wasn't enough, but it was mm -hmm. the first step or the lifeline. And then freediving photography relationship that right. seems to be enough to to keep me keep me going but it started with freediving so yeah yeah freediving has given me like i would still be around without freediving I, I was never suicidal but i'd be i it it's not much of a life so that's why i'm saying like i think freediving gave yeah. me a life yeah. and it's making like i that's how i make a living i mean that's wonderful to hear you mentioned that you know, you sort of rekindled your connection to photography through freediving. Were you formerly a photographer, uh, either through training or otherwise before? <laughs> I was always, as a kid, I was one of those kids who was always doodling, like during class mm -hmm. and everything. And I was always, I'm not a very good drawer, but I was always, I loved sketching and I loved, but because I was such a crap artist, I thought like photography, you don't need to be technically a good drawer. You can just like take a photo of it and that is that. So I wanted to become a photographer. So I applied to photography college when I was 18 or 19 in The Hague, and they rejected me. <laughs> they said no because they saw my portfolio, and it wasn't <laughs> like looking back on it, it wasn't it wasn't a strong portfolio at all. So they were right to reject me. But I I made the basic mistake of thinking that that meant that I wasn't a photographer. So I stopped taking right. photos, and that in retrospect was a stupid mistake. Like you can still take pictures if it's not even if it's not professional, you know? But I was never far from the arts anyway, because I studied communication arts after that. So there was still arts in there. And I still, I ended up in the publishing business, uh, doing covers for books and that kind of stuff and layouts for books. So I was never, never far from, from the field. Right. Yeah. I mean, now you're known around the world, right? As a freediving competition photographer, amongst other things. Um, how how did that involve? I would say unknown, unknown around <laughs> the world. Well, <laughs> well, in freediving circles, anyway. It, 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 it Maybe a little bit, yeah. So, um, yeah, freediving circles, which that happened very organically. So I became a freediver in 2005, I'd say, 2004, 2005. And then I got the little camera and I got the bigger camera. My photography wasn't freediving. It was the things I saw on my trips outside of the water. Because in the water, I just wanted to freedive. But the photography developed to, to such a degree that I started selling my pictures. And I became like a, a documentary photographer for certain things. At the same time, 
the freediving got to a place where like I was setting records, national records, and it became something else. Like it became about numbers and about ego rather than about sensations and loss of ego. And that worried me a little because freediving had kind of given me so much of a life that I thought like if I, if I keep doing this it this way, I might lose the love of freediving. So I took a step back from competing and started doing safety diving instead because I still, I love the community and right. I love being around freediving mm-hmm. and I love the act of freediving. I just, like, when I was, whenever I was competing, I was also like pushing myself too hard and damaging myself and getting squeezes and stuff like that. So I saw myself drifting the wrong way and I kind of caught myself by taking a step back and becoming more of a safety diver. So I stayed part of the circuit as a safety diver and I became a, an instructor and a judge. And then during one training trip, a friend of mine gave me his underwater camera, like an actual DSLR camera in a housing. And I remember that moment nice. where like, yeah, yeah, it was really like, I, I'm not sure if I would trust anybody else with my house, but like he trusted me. And I remember <laughs> I, know, that, I was thinking that I don't want to say anything. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like several thousand words of equipment here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's not like I'm like the most responsible adult in the room, is it? So, but he let me play with that. And that was one of those moments where like I, the moment I, I took the first photo and you know how a photo camera has that shutter noise, right? That click, that click mm-hmm. kind of reverberated yep. through my spine and like everything clicked, like everything all of a sudden went like, ah, this, yes, this. Like it was, cause you never know if passions combine, you know, it's kind of like flavors. Like if you like ice cream and you like um, say liver, you don't know if liver ice cream is going to be, <laughs> that, that might not be the thing, right? It might be brilliant, but you never know. So I was never sure if that was going to be, but like it, it instantly turned out like that was the thing. So I instantly knew like, okay, I have to go and save up for an underwater camera now. So that took me six months of really hard work and very little play and a big loan. But then I had my first camera together and then within, like within, two trips i started selling underwater photos and because i already had the knowledge of like how to take a photo in a way and i i already had the legs of being a good safety diver so you can do like repeated dives to 30 and and keep on keep on going so it kind of had like it was like i i never it wasn't intentionally a training to be an underwater photographer but it turned out that i had done all the right things to become an underwater photographer and then as soon as I did that, like... All the, all the pieces came together. Yeah, they just came together. And then within like a year or two, like this was 2011. And I think I became full-time professional underwater photographer in 2014. So it only took like a couple of years of having to do another job as well. But I knew the, the moment I had that DSLR and, and shot the picture, I knew that this was it. Like, oh, this is what I am. What is it about competition photography specifically that inspires you? Oh, it's so beautiful. It's, to me, first and foremost, I'm, I'm such a big fan of the sport. I think it's the most gorgeous sport. Uh, and it's a lovely sport. And I think, because some phot- photographers think like, okay, it's just blue and a line and it's, it's boring. But to me, it's also, I know most of the athletes and they're my friends. So I want them to do well. And that's always exciting for me to see if they can do well. And there's also like 
the challenge for me is also like, can I can I do better? Can I do can I do good enough? Actually, <laughs> you know, like is is like because mm. the bar is set so high by other people as well, and like, can I do it justice? Can I do this beautiful sport justice? So that's that's always a challenge and always beautiful. Are you are you ever afraid you're gonna miss a moment? Oh yeah, and I often do. Because freedivers have this really weird habit of like not noticing where the light is. So they will always, like if you are in the good spot <laughs> and the light is all, all right, then they turn their back on you. And you go like, no, <laughs> I, I don't want to take an ass shot. I want to get your front. So then you have to swim around them. And then, yeah, 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 every once in a while, and most of them like turn their back on you. I don't know why that is. Like you have you you think you have a 50% chance of getting the front, but it's actually a 90% chance of having the back. It's it's weird that way. <laughs> but, but yeah. But like <laughs> I funny. I can't complain because it's some people compare it to like having courtside seats at the like say at the Lakers game when Kobe Bryant was playing. But I'm actually on the court. You know, it's not like I'm I'm next to the court right. or anything. Yeah. I'm part of the whole thing. So like, it's so so exciting for me to be there, and not just when it's somebody like Will Trubridge or you know, like some Guillaume or some superstar swimming, or when there's world records being set. I find that with almost every every diver, there's always something. Some people have amazing technique, and some are you know are just beginning, and you can tell that they're really nervous, and and yeah, you just you empathize and you're you're there with them and you get to witness them like doing a pb or doing a national record or doing that first dive after a blackout that's really scary like you know there's so many beautiful stories going on there yeah you know it's wonderful that that is pretty cool hmm. you know anyone that's seen your work knows that you have that unique way of capturing light what strikes me is that you also have a way with words, which is one reason I wanted to have you on the podcast. And it, you just generally seem to have this, what seems like an innate ability to express yourself. Where where do you think that comes from? Uh, oof, that's very kind of you to say. I always am a little bit worrisome with words because they were my father's terrain. Like he was a writer and a philosopher and the way he could express himself is like, that's where how I set the bar. And that's usually a bar that, like, if I jump, I, I see it about a, a mile above me, and then I fall to the ground <laughs> in a little bundle and crumples. I think it's that. It's my, Both my parents were teachers, and language is very important to them. So I think that's where the language comes from. It's one of those sensitivities that you either you have or you don't have. So if I read a bad poem, mm. it's it's so painful. I, I cannot handle bad poetry. <laughs> Because it's like a, a badly played violin, isn't it? Like it's just painful. I, I wouldn't know. My brain's not tuned in that way. But no, oh, I can I cannot. But a, a beautiful sentence or a good play on words, or like when you read William Trubridge's uh, book Oxygen, I don't know. Like it's not fair that he has two such major talents. Like you can't be that deep a diver and that good <laughs> a writer. You know, that's that that's just not fair. So yeah, the language yeah it comes. I think it's a genetic thing. It comes from from both my parents. It's certainly, at least from my experience, having you know met you and being in the water with you. I think I don't think it's intentional, but you definitely have a way with words that when you're working the camera, that it makes it a real pleasure being around you in the water. And I I think that must help your work too. So it's always a pleasure to to chat with you. 
You, I mean, you must have taken thousands of images. Is there one you're most proud of or one that stands out to you? If, the one that people comment on the most are the ones in like in Dean's Blue Hole where you get like the big overview shot and like the diver coming down and the sandfall. I love those. But usually it's like, it's the ones you haven't shot yet, isn't it? That like it's for me it's always like the next one and uh like i'm not there yet i'm i'm i feel like i'm i'm still trying to make that shot like, i don't think i'll ever do it i don't think i'll ever be satisfied with my own work that way like i'm happy with it mm. i think it, i think it's pretty good but uh, like it's never to my like it's yeah it's i i haven't done the perfect 10. i don't think it's possible for me to do the perfect 10. Do you, do you ever shoot an image in and put it out there and thinking, oh, it's an okay image, and then the response is completely not what you expected? Yes, and the opposite as well. Like sometimes you think like this is this is epic, and people just go and go, <laughs> or there's no response, which is which is almost worse. Yeah, and the the, the opposite. Yeah, sometimes some swimming pool pictures where you go like that. Like, technically, it's really easy. You know, and I didn't like it. It, uh, it was almost like a lucky shot or something. Not often, though. Like I, I would never diss any um, praise being heaped upon me. So <laughs> I, I, I quite like it when people suck up to me. So yeah, I, I would never say like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> As a penultimate question, what keeps you diving, Dan? I like the sensations of it. The act the feelings of diving in and of itself. And then it doesn't really matter. Like I had a dive recently, not very deep here in Cornwall. So there's like the conditions weren't optimal. It was like 15 or 16 degrees. I was sitting on the bottom plate at 25 meters. just having a bit of a hang. And then you kind of forget all about everything else. Like the surface disappears and you get that connection with the water again. And it happens rarely, but as long as it happens like once or twice a year, where you just hang there and you're just happy, not even aware of your happiness, you're just at one. And mm. like it's a very zen kind of flowy kind of state. And I seem to be, I seem to get that mostly or easy, more easily in water. Like water seems to be a catalyst to get into that state. And whenever that happens, that's just bliss. But the, the tricky thing is you can't pursue it. You know, it, it happens. It's, it's a passive thing. So, yeah, that's why I dive, I think. Wonderful. I mean, your, your work is so visual, right? So um, where can pe people find you online? Danverhoeven.com is my website. On YouTube, I, yeah, if you type in my name, yeah, YouTube and Instagram, uh, I also like want to tell our listeners that in recent years, you've done quite a few really sort of epic and fun and, and sometimes really poetic uh, videos on YouTube. So I encourage everybody to go check those out. Oh, thank you, Nick. Thanks, Nick, for doing that interview. That was really great. Thanks, Justin. No, it was awesome. I had a lot of fun doing it. So I'd interview Dan any chance I got for, for the show and hopefully we'll have him back on one day. Yeah, definitely. It was fun and there was a lot of depth in that, if you excuse my pun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's i gotta say I, I do enjoy his attitude he was really 
really positive fella and some, you know, some interesting chats on there. One of the things I did that did kind of stick out to me right off the hop was the way that he was really just honest and open about chatting about his mental health related issues and how that's connected to free diving. He was obviously Mm -hmm. very clearly pointing out that, you know, without free diving, he wouldn't have, have necessarily come out of that situation. And, you know, when you look at the stigmas associated with mental health and, and, you know, people not necessarily trying to connect all the dots and or wanting to right. speak around it as opposed to speaking into the issue. I thought that was, that was really awesome to hear, you know, the fact that he was, he was basically open, honest and frank about it and just saying like, Hey, you want, you know, I, I'm not going to try to suggest that in every instance, a person can deal you know, with depression in that way, because there are certainly clinical avenues where you're going to require further help. But in, you know, in this instance, it was great to see that he's, you know, he's saying like, wow, here's an avenue that, that really led me out of this dark place. So really cool perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we hear time and time again from scuba divers, from free divers, you know, just all sorts of people that, you know, the, and this kind of even goes into the the depth therapy stuff we were talking about earlier that how effective just being underwater is. This just must be something that it triggers in our genetic history or something that disconnects us or relaxes us. And sometimes you got to make decisions in your life that are for a positive well-being and pursuing the thing that you love and the thing that makes you feel, you know, happy is the best the best decision you can make for yourself. Aw, Justin. That was sweet. That was good. <laughs> that, that like made me tear up. That was nice. <laughs> Do that. That hit home a little bit, April. It did hit home. That was nice. <laughs> Choose diving. Diving is happiness. There you go. I feel like you're right, Justin. Like you know, they like if they have said definitively, like there's a mammalian dive reflex, right? So it, it mm-hmm. does. That's got to tell you that if if we're seeing a physiological response that we you know that we still have left in us, then maybe that connection does does have the ability to help in ways that we don't yet know because we're seeing it now proven in science, like you said with the you know with the depth therapy mm-hmm. article, and now you're you know Dan's talked about it as well, and so. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a lot to be said for it because I know I know there's definitely been days where I've been at the end of my rope and actually one of those like ropes and puns intended was a <laughs> was a day that I was supposed to go out with Nick and we were going to reset the buoy out at Birchie for mm-hmm. for the freediving club like this was before, you know during just before covid or just after covid I think when they were getting ready to open up some freediving. Yeah. And I remember Nick shoot me a text because I hadn't basically communicated with them for the better part of the day <laughs> and i was just like yeah but like i can't even talk to you right now i'm so annoyed and stressed out and you know he was like well hey look we don't need to do this and my first thought was just like oh no we definitely need to do this like if, <laughs> if we don't go do this i'm gonna be so annoyed i don't know how i'll get through my day and really we went out we you know we had like a great dive we reset the buoy and i came out feeling like a million bucks so mm-hmm. you know i can definitely attest to from my end like it, you know agreeing to everything that, that you were saying there before so get out there and dive i guess is what we're saying yeah. go diving it's good for you diving always feels good you always feel so good after a dive mm-hmm. i don't think you ever regret going for a dive sometimes you're like oh i don't know if i can go tonight like it'll be a late night but you never regret it no you just regret no. cleaning your gear 
<laughs> or you can just leave it soaking wet in your car for like whoa, three whoa, days whoa. and get Easy. around to it later. <laughs> Those kind of lazy, lazy corner cutting techniques are how you leave scuba gear on a beach and forget about it. Yeah, that's what that's what Justin learned learned the hard way. I think this yeah. I think this panel of hosts on this podcast is quite split <laughs> in uh, yeah. gear maintenance. Yeah, <laughs> what can I tell you? I fall into the into the pro gear maintenance, and I know for sure if if Nick was with us tonight, he'd be with me. I think we're, <laughs> we're both equally. I we mean, got I some guess, issues. I guess talking about gear maintenance, lawnmowers and GoPros don't mix either. Hmm. Learn that one this week. Yeah, yeah. Keep track of your GoPro. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even know how it got on the lawn. Like, I don't even know. I think a squirrel got it and, like, took it. I'm thinking, uh, let's blame the dog. <laughs> I mean, you have those crazy Ontario squirrels. Ooh, that's true. Oh, yeah, that's they're true. the size of uh, size of Guinness. Like, they're probably yeah. 50 pounds. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it only a matter of time before they found GoPros and started recording their antics. Well, well I mean, the last... these guys will, like, smoke cigars on your deck drinking scotch <laughs> yeah. if you leave them alone yeah. for a sec. You got to watch out for these guys, man. There's something else. They ate my pumpkins. I bought pumpkins and they're done. They ate them. I didn't even know that was a thing. Like, my pumpkins are done. It's not even Halloween. That's that's insane. Oh, it's crazy. There's, like, golf ball-sized chunks taken out of my pumpkins. Uh, That's that's both hilarious and scary. Yep. Yep. Well, my neighbor had one of those little mini, like, gourd pumpkins, and we Mm -hmm. saw the squirrel running down the street with it. It just took it. (laughs) In its little claws. Yeah. Amazing. Not even little Uh, claws. Massive claws. Massive claws. (laughs) Jeez. Well, while April goes out and buys some new pumpkins, we'll take a quick commercial break and we'll be back (laughs) with April's pro tip. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to take a second to thank our sponsor, Torpedo Rays Scuba. Torpedo Rays is a local dive shop in Nova Scotia. If you're not in Nova Scotia, that's okay. They've got a wonderful website, torpedorays.com, T-O-R-P-E-D-O-R-A-Y-S.com. All of the scuba gear you could ever need is there. If you can't find it, give Jason a call, 902-481-0444, and he'll be happy to help you out. In these challenging times, it's always great to shop local. Don't go to a huge, big box help support your local dive shop buy something you've had your eye on excellent time to make a good deal buy a gift certificate to use later whatever the case may be torpedo rays and torpedorays.com will be there for you once again their number is 902-481-0444 or torpedorays.com thanks for staying with us everybody we're back to dive in the podcast up next is april with this week's pro tip this week with my pro tip, I'm going to be talking about dealing with anxiety underwater, which we were just saying really seems to go with the theme of this episode, mm-hmm. which we did not plan out at all. So, <laughs> you know, we're all well, on the same planned. page this week. <laughs> Anyhow, one thing I realize as an instructor that I'm constantly dealing with with students is managing like anxiety and nerves underwater. And then also just like being on the internet in different groups like girls at scuba i see a common thing is like how do i deal with this anxiety underwater i get when i start Mm. feeling overwhelmed so i mean my advice is really simple yet effective i think we just need to remember that number one rule of scuba which is never hold your breath and just breathe 
that's one thing you have full control over. And you always know that you have control over that. So I mean, as soon as you start to feel overwhelmed or you start feeling nervous, just stop what you're doing and take a few breaths. So whether you're, you know, doing a mask removal and replace during your open water and that freaks you out a little bit, when your mask gets off your face, just like pause for a second and take a few breaths and get used to that feeling you can breathe like sometimes people forget but just stop and take a few breaths I even encourage it really to most of my students just to be extra comfortable underwater but I can definitely think of times where I've been overwhelmed and just stopping and taking a breath and just like reevaluating changes everything. So that's my advice for handling anxiety underwater. And even though it sounds so simple, it is so effective. Just take a break and take a breath. Literally just telling yourself to breathe and like saying, breathe in and you breathe in, breathe out and you breathe out. And like, there's that motion and mastering that one thing and like, oh, yep, I'm doing this thing. This is the thing I'm doing. It kind of takes away from the, the stress and anxiety with the other things. It's, it's it, it works really well. I think, too, the thing with diving, unlike being on the surface, is when you're telling yourself to take that breath, like, you actually mm -hmm. hear it. And that's mm -hmm. all you hear is yourself breathing. So I think, if anything, that's your opportunity to, like, slow down your breath and just, like, really get a handle on it because that's all you can really hear underwater is yourself yep. breathing. So, yeah, like, take a second, slow it down, you know. Take a deep breath and you can literally listen to yourself. Take a deep breath. It's definitely one of those ones where you say it and it, it sounds obvious, but I, I think the amount of task loading, especially if you're dealing with a new student that we're asking them to do, when you know, when we throw them in the water, you think the it's day one and we're we're yeah. asking them to take their masks off and breathe off of a regulator and all these other things. So I can see why it becomes overwhelming. And so I think it's a reasonable thing, but it goes right back to if we were on the surface and we were talking to people about managing anxiety, it's one of the first things that we tell them as well is to just slow everything down, focus on your breathing, mm -hmm. uh, breathe in, breathe out. And that usually leads to a better outcome, right? And yeah. I think you see that tying back into our article from today or the, you know, the the components that we were talking about even in relation to the military these guys do that in terms of their combat breathing right like they look at that mm. as they're going through stressful situations they also do it in sniper training and these kinds of things so i think that ability to breathe is really really quite important and you know in scuba i really do think as long as you can breathe you have time to solve any problem that you need to oh, solve yeah. so it's just the only real stress, of course, comes when you don't have the ability to breathe anymore. <laughs> but then I guess we're but just going to grab Nick and have day. Yeah, We'll have Nick sort that out with a little bit of free diving, <laughs> you know, exercises. We'll all be holding breaths forever. It'll be crazy. So. Oh, yeah. I remember one time in particular, it was during my dive master course, and we were doing a deep dive, and I was I ended up getting narked, which gave me just like – really bad like vertigo like I couldn't figure out where I was I remember there was like a bit of sand that got kicked up and I immediately thought I was upside down but there was actually just like a tiny bit of sand like kicked in my face but I was like managing and I know some people say when they get narked 
they're just like I don't know, really happy and almost like drunk and singing <laughs> and this kind of stuff. But I am not like that. I think I've like I've only really been narked once, but that one time I just remember being like, "Oh God, I don't feel okay." <laughs> and we are about to make our ascent, and me and my buddy Scott went to head up. It was also a night dive, which added mm-hmm. to the just like bit of sand kicked up in my face, thinking I'm upside down. So I found Scott kind of felt like I got my like bearings a bit and f- could figure stuff out. We went to make our ascent and he accidentally kicked my mask off of my face. <laughs> and luckily I caught it behind my head. I put it back on, but when I put it back on, I could no longer see the bottom. Everything was pitch black and I mm. had no idea which direction was up. Uh, so I was just like, okay, this is a little bit of an overwhelming situation. Mm -hmm. I don't know where my buddy is. I'm like midwater and pitch black, but no, I totally just like stopped everything I was doing. I opened up my dry suit valve a little bit. I was like, I'll see which way the bubbles are going. And then I don't know what's up. Literally just stopped and took a few breaths. And next thing I know, Scott found me. He's like, yeah, okay. I was like, well, me mostly. And we made our ascent and everything was okay. But I mean, in a situation like that where you're feeling nervous and things are not going to plan, like it's really easy to freak out. But yeah, if you just take that 30 seconds to just stop and breathe and calm down and think of the best way to handle this, like it's a total game changer. That's a good story and definitely a great example of something so simple. Just, just breathe. Helping out. Yeah. Well, thanks for that pro tip, April. Another great one. And can't wait for your next one. Head on over to Nick for this week's book recommendation. So tonight there's not really a book recommendation. It's a film that recently aired on Netflix by David Attenborough. It's called David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. And I think it's a film that everybody should really see. You know, David takes us through pretty much, you know, 94 years of his life as a filmmaker and a natural history commentator and really sort of goes back to the changes he has seen on our planet over the last century, which is pretty impressive. And so it interweaves like footage of what he would have seen as a young boy and also when he was first becoming a broadcaster. And he discusses the changes he's witnessed in biodiversity and, and the growth of populations and how that's impacted the planet. And he has some words of wisdom for what we can do next to make sure things don't spiral out of control. It's a fascinating look at his his life and his work and the life of our planet over the last century. So I recommend anybody should check that out. Uh, It's currently on Netflix. Yeah. It seems like a wrap up almost uh, to his career, but uh, I really hope uh, we still hear more from him because he's such a prolific talent. I don't want to sound gloomy in a sense, but it's almost like if somebody did the David Attenborough, you know, biography film or obituary <laughs> yeah. film, that would be it. Um, yeah, it's, it's like he did his own. Yeah, it's. I mean, the guy has had such such an amazing, you know, life in terms of all the things he's seen, but also mm-hmm. there's been such an influential voice for how we view the natural world. You know, if we think of a natural history documentary, pretty much anybody can, you know think of and named david Edinburgh, which is pretty unique well it's already checked out i've already already watched it prior to yeah. this so that's pretty good eh? Uh, yeah it's definitely great and uh, and it's in 4k so uh, if you got the nice fancy tv definitely beautiful to the eyes yeah thanks for that recommendation nick 
I'm just going to do the coloring book one and that's it. Hmm. Let's stick into the coloring book. That's mm-hmm. probably a good call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just coloring books. Yeah. I'm not even going to order the one he suggested a few weeks back. I'm just going to go upstairs and color in the kids coloring books. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so use what you have. It's going to be a bunch Mickey of crying Mouse, kids some, upstairs, right? Yeah. There. Wake up. Daddy, what happened to my coloring book? <laughs> <laughs> No, I, uh, I don't know why my kids, they're like, Dad, can you color this section in? And they're like, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll color with you. And then it's like, no, now color this section in. <laughs> like, are you going to do any coloring or are you just making me color in your coloring books? Yeah, uh, they've, got your, they've got your number, man. Oh, uh, yeah. I got yeah. in huge trouble in grade primary because I used inappropriate colors is what my teacher said. <laughs> <laughs> inappropriate colors yeah wow. it was written on wow. my report card great primary inappropriate color use hmm. yeah <laughs> interesting I'm, one day i'll have to hear more about that because yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, good I times leave it to april to be in trouble for coloring, <laughs> for coloring. <on> colors <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh, me well oh thanks again to dan for hooven for joining us on this episode it was really neat to learn about your diving history and background and we look forward to having you on again in the future and that does it for today's episode thank my co-host amit thanks for being here very happy to be here as always and uh, great episode again like i said i quite enjoyed listening to dan uh, his, his energy is really quite quite contagious so i i did i did enjoy this very much so thank you guys and april thanks for joining us as well Yep, thanks for having me. It's I'm always happy to podcast with you guys. Always happy to podcast. One day we'll do it in person. Imagine. Imagine that. Free day. <laughs> thanks for being here tonight, Nick. It's a pleasure as always. I feel like I should come up with a new line. Because yeah. <laughs> I always get caught off guard at the end. Uh, but <laughs> I want I wanted to thank Dan Verhoeven for coming on the show and taking part in Dive in the Podcast. And it's a pleasure to be able to tell a story. So if I did my job right, Nick, uh, nobody noticed that you weren't actually here this week and we recorded all of your segments in post. As a matter of fact, you and I are talking by ourselves right now. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just any excuse to podcast, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you caught on that Nick sounded a little bit odd, it was because we recorded all of these bits in post. And, uh, and now we'll just sneak right back into the rest of the show. All right. Dive on in to the ending. <laughs> <laughs> to the ending. Back to the credits. You can follow the show on Instagram and Facebook with at divein.thepodcast. Our email is divein.thepodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, www.diveinpod.com. On there, you can send us a voice message, find links to all of our past episodes, and you can follow me on social media at IDiveOK. April is at April Weikert. Nick Winkler is at Nicholas Winkler Photography. You can find links for everything we mentioned in today's episode on the show notes or on our website, DiveInPod.com. Next week, we speak to marine biologist and coastal ecologist based in Scotland, Lauren Smith. This episode of Dive In, the podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Torpedo Ray Scuba. Head over to your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thanks for listening.